Hello and welcome to this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. I'm Henning Hoff, Executive Editor. Ukraine, Syria, Libya. The trouble spots surrounding Europe have one thing in common. Vladimir Putin's Russia is involved, undermining Europe's security. The current situation in Idlib, where Russia is helping Syria's dictator Bashar al-Assad to squeeze out the last remaining opposition, is a case in point. With the United States gone and the Europeans never involved in the first place, it has been left to Turkey to slow the brutal advance, killing countless civilians and causing even more to flee their homes. On March the 5th, Turkish President Recep Tayyip Erdogan and Vladimir Putin agreed on another ceasefire in Idlib. They announced it at a press conference in Moscow. What lies behind Russia's strength? Is the appearance deceptive? To answer these questions, we spoke to the Swedish-American scholar Anders Aslund from the Washington-based think tank, the Atlantic Council. I started by asking him whether Russia's strength is real or not. Well, the military strength is real, but since it's not uh, borne up by uh, a dynamic economy, this uh, military strength will gradually decline. So what Russia has to make do with is uh, to be trickier than most. You can say that this is very much as the British Empire was towards the end. It used uh, slyness much more than hard uh, violence. You quote this, this famous Russian general saying, what we need is a small war. Is that really the sort of concept on which Russia is, is sort of operating right now? This is an old idea from uh, 1904, formulated by uh, the Tsarist Minister of Interior, Vyacheslav von Kleve. And before the Russian-Japanese uh, war. And this is a very common saying in Russia, that what we need now is a small victorious war. The two uh, small victorious wars that Putin has had are first the war in Georgia, five days in August 2008, and then the annexation of uh, Crimea, in February, March uh, 2014, which was almost bloodless. And on both these occasions, Putin's uh, popularity rating rose to 88%, the highest ever, according to the independent uh, Levada center poll. And how do the new wars in Syria, in Libya, fit into this pattern? Well, they don't really fit. They don't cost that much, but there's no clear way for Russia to get out of Syria, and the cost is increasing, and neither of these wars is the least popular in Russia. So these small wars tend to undermine Mr. Putin? Well, indeed, you need to choose the right war, and the uh, Russian Empire's uh, war with uh, Japan in 1904-1905 was clearly a very poorly chosen war, and uh, Putin does not see good wars coming now. Um, you are sort of describing Russia as declining. What other sort of factors do you see are important to look at to assess Russia's strength or otherwise? Well, the fundamental factor is uh, the economy, and the Russian GDP in dollar terms was uh, $2.2 trillion uh, seven years ago. Now it's $1.7 trillion. 
And uh, after the current decline in the oil price, it will probably go down to, to $1 trillion, which means that Russia is uh, not among the 10 strongest economies in, in the world, but far down the line. And at the same time, the population has been uh, pretty uh, stable since uh, the end of the Soviet Union. It has not declined as expected because of large immigration from other former Soviet republics, but it's not expanding. So Russia is declining these two important regards, and that also limits the military power. Russia spends realistically 6% of GDP on its military today, which was as the U.S. spent under President Reagan in the 1980s. So it's not a massive amount, but it's still quite substantial. And Putin is not likely to be able to mobilize larger resources. So therefore, the Russian military might is set to decline with Russia's relative economic standing. Mm. You predicted Russia's collapse 20 years ago. Do we in the West tend to underestimate Russian power? I don't think I predicted Russia's uh, collapse uh, 20 years ago. I did predict the collapse of the Soviet Union in a book in, in 1989. Uh -huh. And uh, Russia, of course, uh, is, uh, what should I say, tenacious state. Uh, as uh, Russians tend to say, that uh, the, the Russian people are hardy. So it's down to this sort of Russian people being sort of uh, really resilient in that sense that they even endured the most uncaring sort of government. Yeah, but it's also a question, is there any alternative that one can choose? And all of a sudden uh, such alternatives uh, pop up as I lived in the Soviet Union in 1984 to 87. And uh, when I came to uh, Moscow in '84 as a Swedish uh, diplomat, no Russian thought that anything can ever change. And I looked upon this third world country and said that things can't be run this poorly forever. Because uh, as Bignev uh, Brzezinski said in 1983, the Soviet Union was the third world country with uh, nuclear arms. And um, that uh, idea caught on among the Russians. Would it, would it still be a fair description of today's Russia? Well, uh, economically, Russia is much better off. And whoever goes to Moscow is impressed how clean, colorful, beautiful Moscow has become. It's a world of difference from the Soviet times when we look upon uh, the economy. But if we look upon wealth distribution, it's very much concentrated to the rich. My last question, what would be the best way for Europe to deal with Russia? Do we need a new approach? I think that we need to be very clear about Russia. Where I see the big threat today, it's uh, corrupt money from Russia, buying up prominent European uh, leaders, not least politicians. The outstanding example is uh, Gerhard Schröder, who sits as the chairman of uh, the Russian state oil company Rosneft and is also chairman of uh, Nord Stream the pipeline through the Baltics, uh, this should not be allowed. There should be strict rules that uh, former politicians are not allowed to work uh, for Russia. And then uh, we need to get control of the money. Fortunately, this will probably be quite well done through the 
latest European anti-money laundering directive. But we also need better uh, transparency rules for politicians so that we know who is being paid by whom. Anders, thank you very much for this interview. Thank you, my pleasure. Anders Asland. You can read his article, We Need a Small War, in our current issue via our Android and iOS app and on berlinpolicyjournal.com. In formulating a European response to Russia, Emmanuel Macron ruffled many feathers last year when he seemed to court Putin. While the French president tried to take the fast lane to Moscow, he left Berlin behind and somewhat worried. However, Germany's approach to Russia has been contradictory and immobile, as Russia expert Liana Fix of the Kerber Foundation argues. Paris is pushing Berlin to rethink its approach towards Russia. For six months now, it is French President Emmanuel Macron who is setting the agenda. This is a new and unfamiliar situation for Germany. Since the beginning of the Ukraine conflict in 2014, it was Germany that was defining Europe's Russia policy. France is now attempting to redefine the hard-won consensus. And it seems it is overtaking Germany in the fast line to Moscow. In Berlin, a kind of Russia fatigue has started to take hold. German policy consists currently of little more than sanctions on the one hand and Nord Stream 2 on the other hand. In France, Macron has a lot of creativity. He's hoping for cooperation. He wants to broaden the agenda with Russia to include security issues, the Arctic. He wants to form a common front with Russia in order to survive in a new world order marked by China US rivalry. According to Macron, Europe will not be able to assert itself as a great power if it cannot get along with its biggest neighbor on the continent. Germany is much more pragmatic. Dialogue with Russia, especially international crises, okay, but a geopolitical alignment seems far-fetched. Germany cannot take a great power approach to Russia. But at the same time, Berlin should not leave Russia policy entirely to Macron. Europe's Russia policy can only be shaped jointly and not by France alone. Germany should help to define the framework conditions. Inclusivity before ambition, unity before great power. And Macron will need the support of other Europeans, especially the Central and Eastern Europeans, to make his initiative successful. It is only by working together that the EU can exert a constructive influence on Russia and, if necessary, counteract destructive policies. Germany and France need to walk side by side towards Moscow. Liana Fix, her article Fast Lane to Moscow, is now our latest issue. France and Germany working together on how best to address Putin's power play is just part of the picture. In fact, there are moves to get the EU's Russia policy on the new track. We asked our DJP colleague Milan Nitsch, head of the Robert Bosch Center for Eastern European, Russian and Central Asian Affairs, for his thoughts on this new development. We have been observing that the EU's Russia policy has been on the crossroad and has been shifting towards a more positive engagement, regardless of what Russia does or does not on Donbass and Eastern Ukraine. The assumption previously was that the EU-Russia rapprochement would be a response to some concessions that uh, President Putin offers in the Minsk peace process. Uh, without that concessions and with an acknowledgement that there will not be another Normandy format summit on Eastern Partnership anytime soon, there is a pressure on some EU capitals um, to re-engage with Moscow, regardless of uh, what's happening uh, towards Ukraine. I think the other part, the flip side of it, is that EU sanctions will stay in place. 
Now, what's driving it is the acknowledgement in EU capitals that we need to talk to Moscow on Syria, Libya, arms control, climate change, and that we cannot afford to wait anymore. Um, the EU foreign ministers discussed this uh, in early March in the informal session. It was clear that there is a split in two camps. Uh, one of them would be insisting on strategic patience until Russia retreats or offers some concessions in Donbas. The others are saying we have to do it now. And Germany is caught in between because it will have EU presidency in the second part of the year and it will have to moderate between various sort of approaches. And you could see that Germany has shifted towards more sort of engagement with Russia position while also trying to moderate the, the Poles, the Balts and others. So I expect that we will hear more about EU-Russia also within the German EU presidency along China and Africa, because it's something that events will bring. And Joseph Borrell, the new EU high rep, wants to travel to Moscow in the coming weeks and will then put this on the table. Milan Nitsch. Any new EU policy will have to reckon with a Russia that remains unpredictable. As a petrostate, it is highly dependent on the oil prices, as the present Saudi Russian oil price war testifies. In other words, it relies heavily on an economic model that most states are now committed to leaving behind in order to save the planet from the developing climate emergency. Berlin Policy Journal editor Noah Gordon has been writing our carbon critical column since last summer. In the new issue, he looked at what decarbonized international relations would look like for many countries, including Russia. Decarbonization could be a big problem for Russia. Um, the government gets about 40% of its revenue from selling fossil fuels, and no country can simply shrug off the loss of its biggest industry. But it's important to remember that Russia is actually relatively less exposed than some other countries that sell a lot of fossil fuels, for example, Nigeria or Venezuela. You can just look at the oil price war that Saudi Arabia launched this week after it failed to agree, with, failed to agree on production cuts with Russia. Oil prices collapsed to as low as $30 per barrel. And that's not good for Russia, but Russia can survive at those prices for a while. Whereas North American shale companies will have to cut jobs and could even go bankrupt. I don't think the guys at Rosneft or Gazprom will be shedding any tears about that. Russia is party to the Paris Climate Agreement, but the goals aren't very ambitious, are they? Sort of, has, has Russia a problem meeting those goals? Russia will hit its Paris Agreement goals, but it's in a funny situation. The, the base year for those cuts is 1990, and the Russian economy collapsed around that time, so it's actually already hit the target without taking any real action to reduce emissions or to increase wind and solar production. The only low-carbon energy Russia really has is nuclear energy, and it gets around a fifth of its energy from that. So there's a lot of room for improvement, and Russia could do a lot more to take serious climate action. Will it be forced to do so, or, or would it have to do so on its own account? That's a difficult question to answer. Russia, in the short term, looks like Putin will be in power, and the plan is to continue exporting fossil fuels and to continue diversifying those exports. If they can't sell as many fossil fuels to the EU, Russia will sell more to China, for example. What are the specific challenges uh, Russia faces in decarbonizing its economy? Is there something specific or, or is it sort of like every other petrol state? Well, one problem is that Russia likes to use energy as a foreign policy tool. It can put pressure on Ukraine by rerouting gas exports through the Nord Stream 2 pipeline or put pressure on Belarus by ending deliveries of subsidized oil. 
It's also a problem for Russia that the EU is one of its biggest customers, and the EU wants to decarbonize faster than, say, the US or China. So Russia can diversify its exports, and Russia can also eventually switch to selling low-carbon energy to the EU. That would likely be hydrogen, which they can create either by uh, using natural gas and then storing the carbon emissions, or what's called green hydrogen, when they use renewable power or nuclear power to create it in the first place, so there are no emissions. Do you think there's the scope for a closer EU-Russia relationship or closer cooperations in terms of fighting climate change? Certainly, the hydrogen avenue is promising, and the cooperation now isn't very good, so the only way is up. And that's all for this edition of the Berlin Policy Journal podcast. Thanks to my editorial colleagues, Siobhan Dowling and Noah Gordon, and to our producer, Susan Stone. Join us again in April, when we'll be taking a look at the situation at the Greece-Turkey border. Erdogan has escalated by opening the way for refugees to move on, and the EU is stopping them by force. Both sides are to blame for this drastic state of affairs. What is the way forward? Until then, goodbye. Thanks for listening.